If you have your Bible with you this morning, please grab it and open up to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Living well in life requires practical wisdom, or wisdom with a practical orientation. What, what is traditionally called the cardinal virtue of prudence. Wisdom with a practical orientation. Aquinas, in his discussion on prudence, delineates three parts of this virtue. First, it is discovery of what is there, and that's a bit like knowledge. Second, it requires judgment about what is there, what is discovered. But these two, Aquinas writes, important as they are, remain in the theoretical realm. And prudence goes further and presses on to the practical. It is, in Aquinas's words, quote, meant for the doing of something, end quote. So it pushes to what he calls commanding or executing what has been thought out, discovered, and decided upon or judged. This bringing into execution is, according to Aquinas, the chief act of the practical reason. So in short, prudence or practical wisdom does not stop at knowledge and evaluation, but it moves into actions that produce right living. We want to live well. We need wisdom or prudence. So we're going to explore the nature of wisdom through the lens of Psalm 90 this morning. This is what the psalmist seeks, verse 12, that we may get a heart of what? Of wisdom. We may get a heart of wisdom. In the Old Testament, ancient world, the heart is not just the center of emotion as we often think about it. It's the center of the person, of will and of intellect and of feeling. It is the whole person. So to get a heart of wisdom, according to Psalm 90, means to become a wise person who is enabled to live rightly and well in the midst of life. So we're going to ask two questions of Psalm 90 in light of Aquinas' breakdown of prudence. First, according to this psalm, what must be discovered and discerned or judged for a heart of wisdom to be ours? And second, what will this heart of wisdom lead us to do in terms of execution and right action? So again, first, what must be discovered, discerned, or judged to get a heart of wisdom? Second, what kind of action will this heart of wisdom then produce? These are the two questions that we want to look at this morning, and we'll take them in turn. So first, what must be discovered or discerned? What must we understand? The beginning of verse 12 answers this question. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. And I believe verse 12 is a summation in many ways of what's gone on, as we'll see in the first 11 verses of this psalm. Help us, God, to see that we are limited and finite, that we will not live forever. Teach us to number our days is going to contain two key insights, both of which are a contrast. And then I'll bring in a, a, a third thing as well. But the first contrast is help us to see that our days are limited and finite. The years, verse 10, of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Verses 5 and 6, we are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. We are not invincible. We are not immortal. In the words of Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. We need to see this to gain a heart of wisdom. But this is the very thing that we collectively in our day in the modern world have a pretty hard time seeing. 
Uh, back in 2011, I was at a conference, and Mark Golly, who was, is still the senior editor of Christianity Today, was one of the speakers. And I remember that he said, we are obsessed with three things as a culture. Youth, technology, and agency. Youth, technology, and agency. And he said, what unites these three obsessions is our desire to deny our mortality. To deny our limits. Our love of these things are a way of turning, about, turning our backs on the chief insight of Psalm 90. Dale Allison, a New Testament scholar, a Matthean scholar, wrote a book called The Luminous Dusk, and he observes that technology, beginning with the Industrial Revolution, has removed us as a species more and more from nature, from the created world. And that removal, he suggests, feeds a kind of growing sense of self-sufficiency. Here's how he puts it. In the face of earthquakes and tornadoes, our parents were helpless. Droughts and floods left them humbled, cognizant of their own impotence. But the more we construct buildings that will survive earthquakes, the more we learn about predicting tornadoes and time to take shelter, the more we think about seeding clouds and towing icebergs, bergs, and the more, the more we would drain ditches to divert floods, the less terrified we become. This is so important, he continues, because those who are terrified always cry out for help, just as those who are not terrified can remain confident in themselves. And then he continues, industrialization has left in its wake, and we might add to that the technological age that follows on the industrial age, has left in its wake a self-centered confidence in human beings. Less dependent, less aware of our limits, so obvious in the natural world and when we are exposed to it, we grow in blindedness to those limits and vulnerabilities. Now, no one, including Allison, wouldn't argue that we want to return back on the progress that we've experienced, but it's a keen observation nonetheless about the way in which that undermines the truth that Psalm 90 is communicating. Ephraim Radner, the theologian, tells a similar story in his opening chapter to his book, A Time to Keep, which is titled Clocks, Skins, and Mortality. And he reflects upon the effects of what he calls the great transition, I think the literature calls it this as well, in modern society, which is marked, interestingly, by two primary factors. First, an increase in lifespan, and second, a decrease in birth mortality. Two things that we would all look at and say, these are goods, these are gifts, these are evidences of the compassion of God toward us. But interestingly, he documents the effects of these two data, two pieces of data, and says that they are correlated with a rejection of our finitude, resulting in the marginalization of the reality of death, which nonetheless remains very real and present, but is more and more marginalized, as we all would attest in our culture. Rejection of our finitude, of our status as creatures, and of, therefore, the givenness of human life. So he writes, quote, a gift becomes the means of rebellion or at least a willing forgetfulness, plunging us into despair, forgetting the fact that our lives are a given, that they are limited, that they exist only because of the gift of our creator. 
So in short, in light of these observations to which we could add numerous others, we need Psalm 90's insight and urging that we be taught to number our days. But this contrasts, I said these, there are these contrasts, this idea of, of, of human beings' finitude is contrasting this psalm with the permanence of the creator God. So verse 2 in Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is everlasting. We may get 70 to 80 years, the psalm says. That is the totality of our life. But to him who is the creator, a thousand years, the psalm says, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The heart of wisdom sees our limitations, our mortality, our finitude, in contrast to God's everlasting being. The, the being with no beginning and no end, who is eternal, permanent, secure, and vast, where we are the opposite of those things. That's the first contrast to gaining a heart of wisdom in this psalm. But there's another one. More than just numbering our days as finite creatures, and more than just seeing the contrast to the everlasting nature of God, verses 3 through 11 of this psalm are infused with an awareness of our guilt, our brokenness, our sinfulness, and in light of that, of the everlasting God's rightful opposition his anger and wrath against us in our sin. I know these are challenging topics, but stay with me because they're here very clearly in this psalm, and they're important to reckon with. Biblically speaking, actually, if we think about the whole biblical story, and we read Genesis 3 this morning, verse 3 alludes to our return to dust. Look at, psalm, look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return O children of man. That's alluding back to this moment in Genesis 3.19 when God, in the curse against human beings in their sinfulness, says, remember that you are of dust, or from dust, and where to dust you shall return. The shortness and limit, the limited nature of our life, biblically understood, is the result at least from one lens, there are several lenses to view this, but at least from one lens is the result of God's opposition to our rebellion. In our sin, we are objects of God's wrath and anger. And the futility and toil of life, that's mentioned in verse 10, the years of our life, 70 or 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away harkens back to Genesis 3, the toil of tilling the ground. These are a direct result of humanity's rebellion from this God. Now, admittedly, this picture is quite severe, and we don't like to think about it. I remember many years ago, I was leading a backpacking trip. I used to do this as a guide, and we would take out, oftentimes, Christian groups, and we took out this youth group, from a different part of the country. We were in Colorado, and they were from a, a more theologically progressive or liberal church. And one morning, we had several days on the trail together, we would do morning devotions in some way. I assigned Psalm 90 to be the reflection psalm for their time alone. And I didn't really know that I was going to cause what became a, a pretty significant problem after they wrestled with this psalm because the leaders came back and they said, we, we do not like the picture of God in this psalm. He looks angry and wrathful, and, and that's not what we talk about at our church. And 
I tried my best as my young self to kind of engage with them on that question. Uh, it didn't lead to very good feedback on that trip, and they ended up sitting down with the owner of the company when they got back. But I, I, I bring that up just to say, uh, who, had my, who defended me, I should say, but just to say, this picture causes us unrest. It's not popular. It's easy to overlook or to, to, to look away from. But the psalm, Psalm 90, won't let us Forget that God, the God of heaven and earth, the creator God, is vigorously opposed to sin and to evil. The sin and evil that so corrupt and harm his world and his creatures. How does scripture reflect on God's nature? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the wrath and anger of God set against evil is the flip side of God's holy love for his world. It's not capricious, but it is his settled disposition against that which destroys his creation. And when we have aligned ourselves with those evil forces, as John 3.36 affirms, the wrath of God remains on us. And all of that is here in these first ten verses of the psalm. And all of that is part of being taught what it means to remember our days. Remember the wrath and anger of God against sin. And remember that we have sinned against this holy God. And that He sees that sin as verse 8 affirms. You have set our iniquities before you in our secret sins. Maybe that nobody else knows. In the light of your presence. That leads the psalmist to this final question in verse 11. Who considers, he says, the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The answer to that question is honestly not many of us, probably. But the psalm teaches that if if we miss this, that we will miss the heart of wisdom. Because what is the beginning of wisdom? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Miss that component and you miss all of wisdom because you're missing the the basic orientation of the created order and of how the world works. To fear God is to recognize His holiness, His awesomeness, His power, His wrath, and His nature as wholly other than who we are. And it's to see these things as a sinful creature, one who has been made by Him and belongs to Him, but nonetheless has rejected Him in some way and rejected the place that he sought to give us, the refuge that he sought to provide for us, and and moved out into our own place to seek our own way, and to take refuge in our own strength and insights and cleverness. And as such, fearing the Lord, fearing God, means recognizing that I have no claim on this holy God. To fear God is to say, God, you are holy, I am sinful. I have no claim upon you. I have no right to stand before you. You are rightly opposed to me and my sin in your wrath and your anger against evil and sin. And in that observation, that discernment, that judgment, it is to fall at his feet humbly and empty with nothing to bring, with nothing to contribute, without any rights or claims. contrast between our finitude and God's everlasting nature, the contrast between our sinfulness and God's holiness that provokes his anger is all there in teach us, O Lord, to number our days.
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But I said there was this one more thing. This psalm wouldn't have been written at all if all I've said now was all there is. And there's a beautiful little glimpse of this hint as the psalmist, the psalm is attributed to Moses, opens in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The psalmist affirms that the everlasting God has been our dwelling place. Despite our rebellion, despite our sinfulness, despite God's anger and wrath, there is much more to the story. Thanks be to God. We caught a glimpse of that in Genesis 3. Right after Adam and Eve rebelled from God, they moved out of him as their dwelling place into the exposure to the elements, standing on their own. And yet, what does God do for them in their exposure? He fashions for them garments of skin. After their rebellion, he clothes them. He gives them some kind of refuge from the the elements that they had now brought upon themselves by stepping out of him as their dwelling place. This God called Abraham and, and gave a child of promise even after Abraham messed everything up with Sarah's servant Hagar. This God sent Joseph ahead of the people of God into Egypt, ahead of his wicked brothers, that he might save those very wicked brothers from famine through the man that he sent ahead. This God is anguished again and again in the story of the Old Testament through the prophets in particular because of his deep love when his own people begin to walk away from him, when they step out of his dwelling place and go their own way. This psalm teaches at the same time that a central part of the heart of wisdom is to see this red-hot coal in the ashes of sin that is the love and character of the God who created us, who has again and again demonstrated his mercy. to Small, frail, breath-like creatures like us, but like us, made in his image, objects not merely of his wrath and anger, but of his mercy and his love. This God who who will by no means, he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, by no means clear the guilty, who is rightly opposed to and angered by sin, your sin and my sin as well. This God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, he says, for the thousands or thousands generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The heart of wisdom must see this as well. Though our days are numbered, though we have no claim upon this God who made us, who is everlasting, though we have no rights before him as creatures who have gone astray, we must see that this God, by virtue of his mercy and his grace and his love and his character, offers to all of us a place of refuge in his own eternal being. He invites us into his comfort and protection, and safety, and security, merely because of his mercy, out of the storm-tossed ways, and into himself. This is what the heart of wisdom must see. And this is what it means, biblically speaking, and according to Psalm 90, to have this heart of wisdom. 
I'm finite, God's eternal, I'm sinful, God is holy, and yet God offers to be our dwelling place. So then the second question, if you'll remember back to the beginning that I asked, is what then is the execution? What is the action of this heart of wisdom? And that's how this psalm finishes, and we'll be more brief on this point, though it's central. Verses 13 to 17. This heart of wisdom leads to the action of crying out to God for his, for his mercy and his compassion that he has revealed as a part of his character from the very beginning. And there's a cry for three things, briefly. A cry for his love, verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And it's this, this steadfast love of God that will make us glad, that will make us joyful. That's the rest of verse 14 and all of verse 15. Here is true joy and true gladness. It's to have the love of God freshly expressed and known and communicated to us. And that's the cry. And the the love that God gives is deeply satisfying and produces real joy. Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Or my favorite, Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life, my lips will praise you. That love that the psalmist cries out for, the steadfast love, then manifests itself in these last two requests, which are for his work and his power. And this love, of course, love is not just an abstract thought, but it is action. Where do we see the work and power of God most deeply? It's in his acts of deliverance and rescue. For the Old Testament believers, this was looking back to the deliverance from Egypt. But for us, on this side of Jesus and Calvary, we look back to what God has done for us in the expression of his love, the tangible expression of his love in the cross of Jesus Christ. This, John says in his epistle, is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the steadfast love of God that endures forever. In its work and glorious power, those are the words from verse, verse, 15, verse 16 in this psalm. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. We have seen that work. We have seen that glorious power in the cross, in the death and resurrection of God's own Son to set us free from our sin and death and to deflect the wrath of God upon His own self in the person of His Son that we might be objects not of wrath any longer, but of his mercy, and that we might know the depth of life and flourishing. And this is then the last petition. And let the favor of our God be upon us, he says, in the last verse of this psalm. And what? And this is amazing. Establish the work of our hands? That's That's the prayer. Let your love come down. Let your work and power be shown. And then, Lord, if we may be so bold as to rightlessly assert to you this, claim, let our lives count for something. Let them matter in some very real way. Take up our meager efforts, our frail bodies, our our small minds, and use them for the working out of your kingdom purposes in this world. Establish the work of our hands, O Lord. And in Jesus Christ, God offers to you and me a dwelling place, a home, a rootedness, He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you want to bear fruit, if you want your life to be established into matter, then remain in me, in me the vine. And you will produce much fruit. And in producing much fruit, you will show yourselves to be the children of my Father, my disciples, 
That's how your life will be established, not by running out of the dwelling place that is God himself and doing things your own way and making a name for yourself and taking refuge in your own strength, but by remaining in me. The God who loves you, the God who has demonstrated his power over the world and over creation and over evil in such a way as to provide a home for you that you now, in that home, you, me, little us, can bear fruit for God. That's the cry of the heart of wisdom. That's the privilege of the life of faith. That's the invitation of the God of creation to all of us. He wants to be our dwelling place. The last thing to say is if we start in the, in the, in the end if we start with simply this cry for God to have compassion on us and have mercy on us, and we don't actually get the glimpse of the heart of wisdom that the psalm gives us in the beginning, in its opening half, then we are very prone to going down a path of pride and presumption before the God of heaven and earth. We will be very quick to shake our fists at him when we don't have things work out the way that we want to. We will be quick to assert rights that we do not have. It will be unwise for us to land in that place. Thus, the psalm leads us through the valley, if you will, in order that having seen that, embraced that, lived in that, never departed from that, that I am a sinner, we can then cry out from a place of humility, of openness, and of complete need and remain in that place that we might experience his love and work and power and favor in our daily toil-filled lives that are but a breath. Lord, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. And may the first act of that wisdom be to cry out to you for your love, for your power, for your favor. Let's pray.